0: Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm peachy.
1: I am happy to be talking about movies with friends.
0: Uh, first up, in controversies and controversies, theaters are back, baby! Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings opened up to a very strong 75 million or so over the three-day weekend uh, and 90 million or so if you include Labor Day. Before we break down the numbers here and ask if Disney's decision to go theatrical only was a controversy or a non I want to address a concern a few listeners had after last week's uh, episode on the MCU show. What if? Yes, we've had a fair amount of Marvel-centric talk on the show uh, in recent weeks, but that's because Marvel continues to be the biggest thing in pop culture, as seen by the numbers this weekend. I'm going to get into those in a second. I'm um, I'm honestly pretty excited to get into festival and award season chatter. Uh, Paul Schrader's The Card Counter is coming up, for example, just to pick one upcoming movie. But But that movie will gross less in its entire run than Shang-Chi grossed on its opening day. Trust me, I don't feel like I'm going out on a limb on that one. Um, So bear with us while we do one more Marvel-heavy show here. Uh, before we get to the Eternals, of course, and then there's Venom, Let There Be Carnage, and uh, Spider-Man, No Way Home. But, you know, that's it. That's it for the Marvel stuff. We'll, 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 We're not going we'll to do the there.
1: Hawkeye show on Disney+. We're not Plus. doing no, the Hawkeye no. show. We're
0: not doing the Hawkeye show. It's not happening. All right. So here's here's the most negative spin that you could muster about Shang-Chi's opening weekend. Again, seventy five and $90 million. Um, $75 million is $5 million worse than Black Widow's opening weekend. And Black Widow was also available simultaneously via Disney's uh, Disney Plus's Premier Access offering, which reportedly generated some $60 million on its opening weekend. Fair enough. Here's the positive spin. Uh, First off, this is the best Labor Day weekend of all time. This is the biggest Labor Day weekend box office gross of all time. Uh, Also, Shang-Chi's opening weekend is better than the opening weekend for the first Thor, the first Captain America, the first Hulk, and the first Ant-Man movies. Um, And with the exception of maybe Ant-Man, those characters were all way better known than Shang-Chi by the general public. Um, This is the second best three-day weekend of the pandemic era, again, just behind Black Widow. And it gains strength throughout the weekend. This is an important point. The projections ticked up each weekend day rather than down, which is what happened with Black Widow and with F9 and some of the other big releases, uh, suggesting that word of mouth was very strong on it. Uh, still, some people are very upset this this movie was playing only in theaters. As Forbes video game writer Paul Tassie put it, or at least as the headline on, on the top of his essay put it, quote, I want to pay Disney $30 to watch Shang-Chi safe at home, but I can't, end quote. Um, This complaint uh, was typical of the crew of folks who have come to feel entitled to watch new movies at home immediately rather than having to wait an eternity or, you know, 45 days for them to hit TVs. Um, It's also typical of folks who don't understand that theaters aren't a vector of transmission, that there have been zero super spreader events tied to any of them, that the behavior in theaters is not conducive to the spread or transmission of COVID, and that the size uh, and quality of the filtration system and the size and quality of the auditoriums themselves uh, are barriers to the spread of COVID, but that's a segment for another time. Um, The big question, the big question is how well Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings holds. Um, And if history uh, during the pandemic is any guide, it's probably going to hold fairly well. Here's a little remedial box office math for you. You're going to learn something today, folks. When people talk about a box office multiple, quote-unquote, they're referring to the percentage of a film's entire box office gross uh, that is made up of the opening weekend. So the average multiple is about 2.7 on a three-day weekend, which means that if a movie grosses $100 million over that stretch, on average it's going to gross about $270 million total. Uh, the multiple on Black Widow, which is technically still in theaters, but is running on fumes at this point, is 2. 3, a number that reflects both mediocre word of mouth and its immediate availability on Premier Access. Virtually every film that has been released only in theaters has a better multiple than that. F9 and The Green Knight uh, are on the lower spectrum of things with a 2.5. Don't Breathe 2 and Spiral have the, you know, kind of. Perfectly average multiple of 2.7. Uh, Stillwater and Old had uh, have a multiple of 2.8, and I think Stillwater is still in theaters. It's probably going to go up a bit. Same with Don't Breathe Two. That's probably going to go up a bit. Um, these are these are the lower end of things. A Quiet Place Part Two had a multiple of 3.4. That's a big number for a horror sequel. The Forever Purge had a multiple of 3.5. Again, another horror movie, another horror sequel, another big multiple only in theaters. And Free Guy continues to hold very well. It is it currently has a multiple of 3.3. Uh, and I think that number is going to end up being somewhere between four and five when all this is said and done. It's really holding very, very well. Now, if Shang Chi does a multiple of three, which is kind of splitting the difference of all this th- stuff, uh, it'll end up outgrossing Black Widow by a healthy forty million dollars. Not bad for a guy's n- a guy no one who uh, not bad for a guy no one's ever heard of who is up against a literal Avenger. Uh, Peter, did Marvel's bet pay off here, or am I spinning this too hard in their favor? Because I love movie theaters so much.
1: I think this bet paid off pretty well. Uh, You can certainly imagine uh, a scenario in which there was no COVID, in which there was no pandemic, in which this movie came out. I believe it was originally scheduled for February of this year. It was going to come out basically in a repeat of the Black Panther slot, right? An early year debut for a somewhat lesser known character, although obviously much lesser known than Black Panther. um, But for sort of uh, one of the characters who in the comic books has not always been. Um, one of Marvel's, you know, A-list, top-tier characters. Black Panther, again, has sometimes been, but not always been. Um... And, for you know, and where it's sort of it's a big first for Marvel, right? The, the first uh, Asian-American superhero in the MCU here. Um, and you can imagine a scenario in which this movie just did huge, huge business. You know, one hundred and seventy million dollar opening weekend, especially with the kind of reviews they got. This was a very well-reviewed film. And as you said, the kind of film that is going to spread well uh, via word of mouth at the same time. um, the pandemic did happen and we are in the world that we're we're in that we're in where people are not coming out to theaters. Um, and I think, you you know, you have in some ways underrated one of the factors here uh, that is playing in some ways against this movie. It's not just the pandemic. It's not just theater fears. It is the Labor Day weekend itself, which has traditionally been just an absolute dumping grounds for big studios. They have uh, the, the last couple of weeks of August and the first couple of weeks of September have just been where studios put movies that they expect that absolutely no one will see. Often sort of movies that they look and they think, ah, man, we spent a lot of money on this and we just don't think anybody is going to watch it. And usually they're right. And so they drop it into a slot that is known for having really weak turnout. And so the fact that this movie was able to do so well in the Labor Day weekend window, a window that has never really been developed by Hollywood studios for anything other than like, well, here's a movie that we just don't believe in anymore, um, I think is. Uh, I think was it was a smart play. I think um, it worked out pretty well. And I think only Marvel could do it. I don't think there is a single other studio franchise. I mean, I I just I, even a Fast and the Furious movie, I think, wouldn't work in this window. Um, and I think Marvel was smart to understand that they have a unique draw and a unique hold on their fan base. They exploited it or managed it, whatever you want to say, quite well uh, this weekend. Um, and, you know, it helps that the movie itself is, in fact, pretty good and pretty likable.
0: We'll get to that in a second. I, I will. My one pushback on the the Labor Day uh, window being a dumping ground, which it is. You're, you're absolutely right there. Is that Labor Day this year is different from Labor Day other years? People aren't traveling as much. Um, you know, That's actually are... not
2: quite true. The TSA um, said that the numbers of folks that they clocked in were finally back up to 2019 levels for Labor Day, okay. so there actually okay. was a fair okay. amount of travel happening this year, which Never actually mind. Makes instantly
0: wrong. Shen so Chi's maybe performance I, look
2: I, a little I, better.
1: I will actually say I, I will make uh, Sonny's point for him here a little bit. People might be traveling just as much as they did in pre-pandemic years, but if you go out any to any sort of bar strip any place where sort of people like you see people on the streets going out and doing stuff just sort of being out they're all just uh, at least in northeastern cities at least in sort of big metropolises i don't know about florida but at least in in a sort of densely populated parts of the world they are depressed in terms of their activity. There are just not as many people out on the streets. There are not as many people people going out and doing things. And so even if Sonny is not quite right about travel patterns, he is, it's certainly the case that people are staying home in ways that are unusual and would not have been the case a couple of years ago.
2: But I also wonder, um, to validate one of Sonny's earlier points, is if people are looking at their options for entertainment and deciding that Given the available choices, that going to a movie feels safer than going to a bar because you know most people will have their masks on most of the time. That you're not, you know, facing someone. The seats are generally big enough that you have some spacing. Um, you know, Peter, you and I saw Shang Chi a couple of weeks ago um, at a critic screening. My husband and I actually went to see it again this weekend. Um, well, we had some grandparental babysitting. Um, And it was just really, again, you know, nice to see a totally full theater of people enjoying themselves. But I think, you know, also feeling like, okay, we want to do something. We don't just want to sit at home all weekend, but we don't really want to go to a bar. This feels a little bit better. Um, And so I think there have been a lot of really grim prognostications about what's going to happen to the box office. But You know, I think theaters actually have a case to make that they maybe should be making a little bit more strongly that not only is this the best way to see a movie, but it's one of the safer kinds of entertainment you can have with large groups of other people right now.
0: Yeah, and this is one reason why I was so mm, vexed when Disney, in their response to Scarlett Johansson's lawsuit uh, about the box office receipts versus the, you know, premier access availability of Black Widow, said you know oh how dare scarlett johansson want people to go into theaters during in the midst of a pandemic i'm like you guys are shooting yourselves in the face here like you are you are you are making the worst possible case for movie theaters so know disney plus is a is your primary revenue generator at this point but but still
1: there's a difference i think that is notable between the way disney has uh, proceeded and the way the theater owners have proceeded and the exhibitors last year launched this theater safe campaign cinema, I think safe. It cinema safe right and did try to make this argument and this was right around if i recall correctly right around when tenant was coming out i think yep. in yep. The, the weeks leading up to which was right around this time last year the beginning of the end of august beginning of september and it totally failed now there was no vaccine at that time right and there's yep. a big difference there was also just not a lot of material being released um yep. you know at, at that time of, of year so even if people had been interested maybe uh, you know, there just wasn't enough material in theaters. And Tenet was as much as I think uh, the three of us liked it in certain ways. Tenet was not. It um, was a little bit. People sort of responded to it in mixed ways. Uh, but they tried and it sort of didn't work. Now, I think that that message plays very differently in a world with widespread uh, vaccine av- availability, where virtually anyone who wants to get vaccinated, who is uh, a teenager or older, can get vaccinated this afternoon and get that process started if they have not done so already. Um, but they have not made that effort in a renewed way uh, this year, though what they've done instead is, is reopen and just say, look, here we are. We've got movies now. Um, please come see our movies.
2: Yeah, and it may be that they don't need to be the ones pushing the debate as much. Hilariously, I always thought that it was a mistake to have Tom Cruise be one of the faces of that Cinema Safe campaign. Because Tom Cruise is a guy who likes to hang off of, you know, airplanes professionally and do other crazy things, right? Like, if Tom Cruise tells me something is relatively safe, I do not believe him. <laughs> But yeah, this they're... is the
1: guy who did, what, 500 of those uh, crazy low altitude jumps for the last Mission Impossible film in just a train?
2: Yeah, like, I'm sorry. I, I enjoy Tom Cruise as an actor, but in terms of his judgment, the man's a lunatic. And so... <laughs> <laughs> and
0: that's before any of the Scientology stuff. Oh,
2: yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, please. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I think the combination of there being stuff to see in theaters, people being vaccinated and also people being bored, I think people, you know, the more cautious people in the world were probably not ready to venture out en masse. I mean, you know, Peter, the two of us saw Tenant with our spouses in a private theater that we rented for the occasion where we sat like 50 feet apart. You know, even like we really care about seeing movies and we were quite cautious under those circumstances last year. Um, and you know and I think correct. also quite, and I was quite double informed. masked
1: with an N ninety five.
2: Yeah. And you know, we, we are Sunny. invested in We're invested in movies. We're also, you know, our day jobs are in journalism that has us in a lot of contact with information about the virus. And we were really cautious then. Um and I think we all feel differently now, in part because there are vaccines, there are better masks available, and we just know more about the science of this thing and also frankly how movie theaters work than we did a year ago
0: all right so set aside the theaters being safe factor which is obviously true and everybody needs to uh, just uh, kind of understand and accept this uh who is listening to this if you if you don't believe theaters are safe just you know uh, i don't know i don't know what to tell you but it's, it's they are um, but the, the 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 big question here is one of consumer choice right the big pushback is well you know consumers have gotten used to be able to watching new movies day and date, and that's how it's gonna have to be otherwise you're just gonna lose the audience and I think that's wrong I mean I think it's I think it's just objectively wrong right like the guy who wrote that piece that annoyed me uh, that I that I quoted the headline of he actually tweeted out later in the weekend well I went to go see Shang-Chi in a mostly empty theater and I was like I, look Mar- Disney Disney wins yep this is Disney Disney wanted you to you change your behavior and you have changed your behavior to suit their whims. That means that the idea that it is kind of a foregone conclusion that people just aren't going to go back, that they're that they're done with the theater, or theatrical experience is strikes me as wrong. It's so basically fundamentally wrong.
1: I think it's partially wrong, but it might be somewhat right. Um, and I, I, I don't know how much it's going to be right, but I, I just think there's a big difference right now between uh, the MCU products and everything else and there's just an obvious demand for these mega spectacle events and for any and all products in this franchise this is why we talked about what if uh is because people are interested in this stuff and they're just they're interested in almost anything actually in literally anything that has the mcu stamp on it and that's not true for any other brand in hollywood even, yeah. even for like I said, for Fast and the Furious, or if there was another Transformers film, or for any of these, you know, brands where it's very common for a movie to make a billion dollars globally, uh, I just don't think that the other that the other franchises have that kind of pull, and Marvel has it. Maybe Star Wars would have it if a, if the movie was really well reviewed, if there was like sort of some sort of movement around that, but it's Marvel and that's it. And I just think everybody else is in a in a different position.
0: Well, I mean, the the other thing you just that's worth mentioning here is you mentioned F9 uh, and you mentioned uh, movies that make can can reach a billion dollars worldwide. And uh, Shang-Chi is not one of those movies, frankly, because it is not a movie that is playing in China. Um, and this is the this is the exit kind of thought here. It really doesn't matter. For well, I mean, it matters, but it, it is not the be all end all. It is it is a necessary uh, but not sufficient uh, piece of information, shall we say, for movies to come back domestically. If a 200 million dollar movie does not open in China, it cannot get to a billion dollars and it cannot be profitable. Um, and this is uh, a problem for for Disney right now, which is kind of in limbo over there
1: well i i don't know that i agree with that as a general proposition it's just possible to imagine a movie that performs like um the force awakens in the united states shang chi is probably not that that movie but you can't completely rule it out with any Marvel product. Um, yes, a and, movie that
0: grosses $900 million in the United States will probably get to a billion dollars worldwide. And Star
1: Wars yes. has always sort of struggled to do well with the Chinese market. And so it's, it's at least theoretically possible that um, Marvel, Disney, that one of the big studios could open a franchise film um, and do just outsized business in the United States. Probably not that level, uh, just given the way that theatrical attendance looks right now. But um, I do think, you know, obviously Marvel wants to open their movies in China and they and you can see that in their release strategies in the movies that they're deciding to make um, and in the way that the Marvel people and the Disney people are talking about the Chinese audience and the Chinese market. Um, And so they obviously think, uh, look, there's a big market there uh, that they want to be attached to. I don't think it's actually the case that you could never that without China. I think if you shut down China tomorrow to unite it to American films, I don't think that that would mean that you would never see another $200 million film greenlit. I think it would be rarer, though.
0: I don't know. I think it would be it would be hard to justify. It would be very, very hard to justify. Um. All right. Uh, so, what do we think? Is it a controversy or a controversy that Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings was in theaters only? Alyssa, it's
2: a non-troversy.
0: Peter,
1: well, some people think it's controversial, but I don't. So, it is a controversy in the sense that some people believe that. <gasps> yeah, but Fine, Peter.
0: Peter. You, Peter, you could say that about literally every topic in this segment. The whole point of the segment is to say whether or not it is controversial or it is is Don't We're making segment judgment calls to me. here. We're we're we are we are in the business of rendering judgments and judge. My judgment is that it's a controversy. Uh, if you enjoy this show, uh, especially the controversies and controversy segment, always a firecracker. Who doesn't? They're great. Uh, make sure to head over to atma. dot dot com where we're going to pay tribute to the great Michael K. Williams, star of The Wire and Boardwalk Empire and other shows, uh, who tragically died this weekend at the age of fifty four of a suspected heroin overdose. Very sad news. Uh, we were all big fans, so. Um, uh, looking forward to talking about that segment, kind of. <laughs> uh, and now on to the main event, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which I'm just going to refer to as Shang-Chi from now on uh, to save me some words. Um, Shang-Chi stars Simu Lu as the titular character, a prodigal son, whose father is a thousand-year-old Chinese crime boss. Uh, in a prologue, we see the rise of said cr- uh, crime boss, played by the great Tony Lung, who uh, has been granted enormous power and eternal life, that, again, that thousand years, uh, via the Ten Rings he wears on his wrist. His son, Shang, uh, who has given up the family business and is going by Sean in San Francisco, um, is working as a valet alongside his friend and comic sidekick, Katie, played by Aquafina, until his father sends assassins to collect him, that is, leading to a series of escalating fights, first on a city bus in San Francisco, then off the side of a a skyscraper in Macau that ends with him returning to the fold and embarking on a quest to find the mythical and magical village whence his mother came uh, and where Shang's father hopes he might find her again. Those are the broad strokes of the plot. We might discuss a little bit more in a minute, Um, but they're enough for our purposes here. Uh, I want to talk about the broader... Uh, picture with this movie, which is that it's a big Marvel movie with all the pluses and minuses that come with such a product. Um, on the plus side, competent storytelling. The action is coherent. It's well put together. The bus fight in particular makes great use of space and motion to craft a compelling set piece. Uh, it's frequently very funny. I, I very much enjoyed Aquafina uh, after being kind of cold on her for much of her uh, career, but um, between this and The Farewell, I, she's she is very much grown on me. Um, and it has callbacks to previous Marvel movies. It's got a mid-credit stinger. It's got a post-credit stinger. Uh, it sets up further adventures for Shang and Katie in the broader MCU. This is a great episode of television. Um, and on the minus side, it uh, it has the same kind of flat look that a lot of Marvel movies have. It ends with a big old CGI battle, lots of flying thingies, some sparkly shooty thingies. They're all they're all going at each other, uh, and uh, the good guys win. Shocker. Um, but the biggest thing, look, the thing this this movie Spoilers, gets right and funny. and the, and the thing, and the thing that Marvel movies sometimes don't get right is that the villain's stakes are, are perfectly calibrated. They're both very personal. Shang's father uh, hopes to free his mother from a prison he believes her to be in, uh, and simultaneously very, very large. It, it, if he gets what he wants, it would destroy the universe, and that would be uh, bad. But it would be an unintended consequence. It's not his ultimate goal, right? Um, this gives the big CGI foofaraw at the end a little more oomph. I... You know, I actually felt some things when it was going on. Alyssa, did you feel things uh, while you were watching Shang-Chi?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is a Marvel movie that is just very calibrated to get me. Um, and I will, specifically, there is a scene early in the movie where you see, um, you know, Sean's room in San Francisco, this sort of, like, grim little apartment. And he has posters on his wall of our outcast Stenconia and for Kung Fu Hustle, which if neither of you have seen it, I, I almost I almost don't know how to describe it. It is a musical kung fu western, basically. I think that's a, a reasonable description. Uh, it's also a comedy. Um, it's it does a really nice job of sort of turning fight scenes into dance sequences. And Shang Chi and the, Le- the Legend of the Ten Rings is obviously very influenced by that by the look of movies like um crouching tiger hidden dragon and house of flying daggers um and as such it is tuned to the same cultural wavelength as a bunch of what for me were really seminal cultural experiences um you know i remember when crouching tiger hidden dragon came out and there were literal lines around the block in my suburban hometown to see it at the local indie theater um i must have seen that in theaters five times still one of my favorite movies um and so I love the version of this movie that is you know about sort of fight sequences as dance and communication I I mean I also just love Tony Leung so much um that see getting to watch him for two hours in an American blockbuster um it's just such a sort of pure pleasure that it kind of short circuits my brain. I it, but it also makes it worse when you arrive at the inevitable CGI foofoo at the end, and it's like, oh great, you foo-fura. know, you know, this is this is this in some ways sort of lovely humane human scale movie that, of course, is going to get derailed by this absolute nonsense. And I mean, there are so many kind of smart decisions made in this movie, right? I mean, the the opening fight sequence between, um, you know, Shang-Chi's father and mother that is a dance and a seduction all in one that, you know, borrows from this tradition of wirework martial arts, but that also just spends an enormous amount of time in close-up on the characters' faces as they realize what's happening, as, you know, what starts out as an effort at conquest turns into a flirtation and a seduction and a sort of mutual enjoyment of each other's talents, right? I mean, that is... It's the most sort of emotional character-driving fight sequence that we've had in a Marvel movie probably since uh, The Winter Soldier. Um, You know, and, and the same way, you know, when you have this, when you're leading up to the climax of the movie and there is this clash between, um, you know, the Shang-Chi and the Talo villagers and, um, you know, Shang-Chi's father and the Ten Ten Rings army, the movie makes this, you know, uh, Destin Daniel Cretton makes this incredibly smart decision to leave the big messy fight sequence in the background and to, um, you know, have that be provide ambience to a conversation and then a fight between Shang-Chi and his father that basically happens in front of the shrine to Shang-Chi's mother, right? It's like there is this decision to always kind of default to the intimate and the character driven up until the moment we get a bunch of CGI monsters fighting each other. And yeah, I'm accustomed to that because it's a Marvel movie, but it actually feels worse in this because what it derails is frequently so much better.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I just feel like it's so baked into the cake at this point that i it's like getting mad at the wind. It's like, oh, stop blowing, wind. Knock it off.
1: Sometimes I am mad at the wind, though.
0: I am frequently mad at the weather, but what good is it going to do you? Uh, Peter, what What did you make of this? I know you wanted to talk about the second unit work with the uh, the, the Kung Fu vets.
1: Yeah, so actually, before we get there, I want to defend kind of the CGI foofara at the end. It's... It's not great. Like it I, I agree that it is in some ways a letdown. But I also think that it has something that those Marvel third act CGI fufaras don't typically have, which is a genuinely good idea and a visual that is at least potentially really, really interesting. And so if you if you've ever kind of encountered even the 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 most shallow amount of uh, Chinese myth and culture, right? You have seen these images of these giant flying cloud dragons before. And I mean, I I remember kids' books, you know, that my mom used to read me, um, where I would see those sorts of dragons, uh, you know, painted or or drawn out and, and illustrations of them. And so on the one hand, it's a very common image that lots of people are familiar with. And on the other hand, you cannot think of another instance of seeing this on the big screen really at all certainly not in an american studio film rendered with 200 million dollars worth of cgi resources and so just seeing that big dragon there and having it be such a central part of the third act and and bringing it into the story i think is something that works a lot better than say the we're gonna have a the thing at the that you know in Black Widow, which like the third act's sequence is first of all, it's like there's this terrible villain reveal that is just boring and doesn't make any sense. And then also, what you've got is here's the red room and it's floating in the sky because you know why it's floating in the sky because it would be cool. That's it. There's no cool. reason. Other. There's no connection to anything. She's like, let's have a floating sky base and blow it, it it's up. An,
2: it's an evil helicarrier.
1: Sure. And I yeah, I, mean, it's, I it's even like some of the imagery in the third act of Black Widow, uh, especially when everybody's sort of falling through the sky. It looks kind of neat, but there's no reason for any of this stuff. It's just sort of there because they needed something big to blow up at the end of the movie. And so I, I think that this movie at least is a, has a somewhat better bad third act than the usual Marvel bad third act. And I will I will defend like I will defend it on the idea level, if not the execution level, because I do agree that the CG does just come across looking sort of weightless, sort of animated. They've never figured out no in 20 years. We have not figured out how to have actors Uh, sitting on top of a CG flying animal who actually look like they are interacting with that animal rather than looking like they are sitting on like four pieces of green plywood in a studio in Culver city somewhere. Right. Like this in some ways almost looks worse than some of the similar stuff you saw with like the elephants in in the uh, Lord of the Rings, the first Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, and so just the just on a like a kind of craft level i don't think it works but it's a good idea and it fits thematically and artistically with the rest of the film in a way that i think a lot of the Marvels don't the Can, I, uh, really can don't I, I just want
0: I, I want to push back on this slightly because i think uh weirdly Rhea and the last dragon which is a movie i did not really like at all actually does all the dragon stuff better and granted it's an animated film So, you know, it It does everything else. I'm
1: not even sure I agree with that, but it does everything else, including all of the kind of martial martial arts stuff so much worse. And it's just it's just a movie that by the time we get to the third act, I'm just so irritated with that film. Uh, in a way that I wasn't here. And and I guess maybe that's part of it is the first two acts work so well that by the time we get to the third act, I'm willing to cut this movie some slack. So, yeah, I wanted to talk about I want to talk about the martial arts stuff because it's so good, guys, it's so good. It's not the best, you know, Marvel martial arts work I've ever seen in a big budget film, right? It's not the Matrix. It's not Kill Bill. It's not, you know, um, Wu Ping at his best, but it's really smart and fun and clever. Uh, and, I, you know, something that that Alyssa talked about, um, that opening sequence between Tony Leung and and his sort of future wife when they're fighting each other, it really kind of. Yeah. Uh, right. And he it, it really kind of um, calls to mind uh, uh, House Flying Daggers, Curse of the Golden Flower, all that era of stuff. But what it's what it's doing is it's telling you something about the characters. These aren't fight scenes just for their own sake. They are there. To demonstrate who these people are and how they interact with each other, and that is always true of the best action sequences. Any great action sequence is a character-building sequence and character-building moment, and you can think of that from the opening of you know, uh, the of Casino Royale to the truck chase in Raiders of the Lost Ark to even you know uh, I've already name-checked The Matrix, but the whole but like every bit of the third act of The Matrix, all all of the stuff that starts with the lobby shooting spree. There's just so much character built into all of this. And that's part of what makes it memorable is you're connected not just to the action because it looks cool, but you're connected to it because you are finding out who these people are. And, you know, part of what they, they're doing here is they're recycling a lot of Jackie Chan stuff in part because this is the Jackie Chan action team. And so what Marvel did was, was something really smart here uh, was they brought in a bunch of veterans of Jackie Chan's action movies, and they have not so subtly... Uh, built-in references and to and call outs to. and in in one case, sort of a, a, a an extended direct homage uh, that whole sequence um, take it that takes place in the the bamboo stilts or whatever they are outside the on the wall of the building. that is a direct homage to I believe it's rush hour two where there is a very, very similar sequence. But then even in the beginning, you know uh, the the bus chase that's, I think at like the quarter point of this film, there's this great little bit early in that sequence, which is so wonderful, where uh, where Shang-Chi, his jacket gets removed and he's like stuck in his jacket. Right. And it and suddenly then he's he's like, OK, I'm going to use the jacket to fight these guys off. Right. And so it's a great sort of application of the Jackie Chan school of user environment to fight, which Jackie Chan always insisted on. It is also a direct reference to Rumble in the Bronx, which has basically the, a, a different version of that same action beat. Um, but you're finding out like who he is and how he works and how he thinks. And what he is, is somebody who thinks quickly on his feet. He notices his environment and he builds it into his attack patterns in a way that is, that tells you sort of how clever he is and how integrated this, uh, these fighting powers are into who he is.
2: It also, um, I thought the fight scenes also nicely demonstrated a strength of the overall script, which is that it doesn't need to hammer home its metaphors too closely. Um, because you'll, I mean, if you watch the movie and didn't see this the first time, you'll see it a second time. There's a huge contrast, but um, both of the um, sort of fighting styles that we see involve circles, right? I mean, there's that sort of foot sweep that um, clearly is like kind of characteristic of the way that the Talo is set up for fights. But then, um, you know, Shang-Chi, his father, the um, the Ten Rings in general, fight with closed fists um, for the most part. In And so you have, you know, a contrast between the open-handedness that characterizes this hollow style, it's sort of smoother, more interactive, um, you know, there are a lot of scenes there of characters, like, using each other's body weight, leaning into attacks and redirecting them, uh, versus that sort of forcefulness. And you know, the final gesture that Tony Lung's character makes is to open his hands, right? And, you know, in the scene where Michelle Yeoh's character, um, like Auntie Nan, is teaching Shang-Chi the sort of Talo style, she just opens his hand for him. Um, and she doesn't say, like, we open our hands because of, like, this style of openness or approaching the world. She just does it. And then, again, that gesture is repeated eloquently but not sort of heavily yeah. in you know t- tony Long's character's death scene and um you know the movie just doesn't it's a more sort of trusting script to a certain extent um in part because i think some of the acting is better right i mean i've you know i i mentioned that i love tony Long, like i would you know, I wish all men would just dress like Tony Lung's character in both this movie and, and every other movie that he's in because he's so stylish and great. But he also just has this tremendously expressive face, right? And, you know, the fact that you sort of meet him after this period of estrangement, and he shows up telling this crazy story about hearing a dead wife's voice and is sells the character's convictions sort of so beautifully. Um, but I just, I think it's to a lot of the, you know, Cretton's credit, to the actor's credit, to the, you know, fight choreographer's credit, that the movie just never feels like heavy handed or remedial. It feels very immersive. And it's a movie that kind of trusts you to see little details like that. And if you don't see the, you know, the contrast in the martial arts style, that's okay, But it is kind of integrated with the movie's larger themes, with the script um, in a way that's just really lovely and has a note of sophistication that the Marvel movies don't often achieve or even reach for.
1: And it manages to do this in a way that it's like I I think part of what you're getting at is that this is a very kind of user friendly movie without being a dumb one. Right. And so it is it manages to bring people in and it's really pretty smart of the way uh, it it is. It it suggests a kind of intelligence on the part of Marvel in terms of how they are setting up phase four and sort of the next wave of uh, of Marvel films here, because this is a relatively lore light film. Again, some of the Ben Kingsley stuff uh, kind of aside. But even that is is interesting in that it is a reference back to, you know, Iron Man three and the way they used a sort of quasi Mandarin character. and it's a reference that says, actually, we're sort of we're sort of sorry for how we did that, but we're not quite going to wipe it from the continuity or pretend it didn't happen. Instead, we're going to make fun of it and, and like build it into the story in a way that you don't have w- to understand Iron Man 3, have seen Iron Man 3 to get this. Um, on the other hand, if you have, it's, it's pretty funny. Like, I, w-
0: I will yeah. say I will say that I found it vaguely ridiculous to uh, imagine this Chinese, this thousand year old <laughs> Chinese crime boss using the word appropriate. They they appropriated this name. I was just like, oh, come on, guys, come on!" Yeah, I, I, save 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 the Twitter theatrics for Twitter. Please. I mean, it, I'm um,
1: I'm just excited for the sequel. Ben Kingsley and the Legend of the Fuzzy Butt, right? Like he, it's Ben Kingsley running around this movie with like a an animated dog character that is just a, like a big fuzzy winged butt, right? Fuzzy butt. <laughs>
2: Yes. When Ben and Fuzzy when, when Marvel makes that television show, then we can discuss discuss it on across the movie aisle. It's but gonna
1: be right. it's uh, a great maybe, episode
0: of What maybe. If season I'm gonna, two. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make any promises. We're gonna we uh no TV shows from that one All right, uh so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Alyssa. Thumbs up. Peter. Thumbs up. Thumbs up from me as well. Three thumbs ups. Go see it in the theater. All right, that is it for today's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out uh, our members-only bonus episode on the sad passing of Michael K. Williams. Um, and make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we will die, like Fuzzy Butt. Uh, if you didn't <laughs> love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter, at SunnyBunch. I'll convince you that this is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. just kidding he doesn't die he makes it through to the end of the movie